0: Good afternoon. It certainly is a beautiful day. We still have those without rain and <laughs> snow. Thankful for the precipitation we've had, but sure is nice to see the sunshine, too. Uh, heretofore, we've had a couple of people doing essentially all the hall cleanup, and uh, Jocelyn and Jessica had been cleaning at least every two weeks and doing all of it themselves. And I I think that that's quite a bit to ask of them. They're happy to serve and happy to do it. But uh, a little help would be nice. So we didn't have to do it all the time. So we put a sign-up sheet for volunteers to help do so. And we'll see how many can contribute that way and then set them up in teams so you have two at a time to do it. And uh, this can be male or female. Uh, no reason why a man can't clean just as well as a woman. Well, maybe not as well, but I mean, is able to, let's put it that way. I've sometimes referred to it as, well, I got it man-cleaned. That's different than woman-cleaned, I think, most of the time. But anyway uh if you, I don't know, the times can be set up where it's during the week, morning, and afternoon, night. It doesn't really matter when it's done to fit your schedule. Because you, as a team, if you have this period, uh, you can decide between yourselves when's a good time for you to do it. So it's not just a set thing at a special time every week. But uh, they've been doing it every two weeks, which is probably enough to do the floors and everything. It doesn't get too dirty in here. So the sign-up list, is it on the bulletin board in the kitchen or here on the table? It's on the table here at the back. So uh, consider that, and I don't know how many times a year uh, your name would come up, but it really depends on how many there are. Or how frequently it would be. So keep that in mind and sign up if you can help. It would be much appreciated. I'll tell you, we've, we've had things nice here. and It's been taken care of, and I deeply appreciate what has been done. But if we can share it, that'll be even better. I don't think of anything else in particular to announce other than that the world's coming to an end. <laughs> That's, I guess enough said. We're getting closer to war every day that goes by and closer to all kinds of problems. Uh, the Chinese have even had a spy balloon over Billings, Montana uh, this week, apparently checking out uh, some of our missile silos and so on. I don't know whether you've seen some of those where you've traveled, but uh, I've seen quite a few in Montana where there's just a a fence with a couple of little buildings in it, and it's a missile silo is what it is, and they could figure that out pretty easily from the air where they're located and everything else, and we didn't do a thing about it. That tells you about our government. Whose side are they on? Anyway, i said enough said, and I guess it was not. But let's go again to the book of Isaiah. Last week we were talking uh, about how the Assyrian had come into Hezekiah's uh, reign and was making all kinds of threats and so on. And how that ties with Worldwide Church of God. I think the Assyrian represented the state of California who came in and tried to take over uh, a receivership and caused basically a cessation of what we were trying to do, because if they controlled the money in the buildings, uh, we would have been able to do nothing. It would be almost like going into a captivity, unable to do anything. And God took care of the Assyrians, just as, from my viewpoint as an observer during those years, uh, he took care of the state of California. It became a non-issue. They backed off and and went away, as the Assyrian did. And in the historical record, of course, God killed 185,000 Assyrians on one night, or one morning. Uh, So, uh, he took care of the state of California, and we didn't hear any more out of them after that. Then Hezekiah gets sick, down in chapter 38. We'll wind these up in these two chapters, 38 and 39 today, uh, because there's a great deal in here that parallels worldwide and what happened there into Mr. Armstrong and what has happened since and what was worldwide. It's, I think, very, very clear in these two chapters, perhaps even more so than the previous two. But it says, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Uh, he was on his deathbed. He wasn't going to get up. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Eternal, Set your house in order, or you shall die and not live. So God sent Isaiah to let him know that his life was coming to an end from the sickness that he then suffered. And Mr. Armstrong also began to have heart difficulties and troubles and eventually had a heart attack. We'll get to that a little later. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Eternal. Now, Hezekiah had been essentially a righteous king, more so than most. And God worked with Hezekiah because he did get rid of a lot of Baal worship and did turn people to God to a great degree. And God recognized that and honored that. And I think as we read the rest of this story, uh, strictly from Hezekiah's personal point of view, even though he would have disagreed at the moment for sure, he might have been better off going ahead and dying when God told him that he would. Uh, you know, there comes a time when it might be better. I think I recounted to you not too long ago, I heard somebody say that if you have a chance to die in your 70s. Take it. It only gets worse after that. (laughs) And where he had come in his life, he was at the point where he was facing death, but from a purely human standpoint, he might have been better off to have gone ahead and died. But God is a merciful God, and God hears prayers. And let's read the story. So he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Eternal. So here's the correct thing to do. If you're told something that to you is a bad thing, God might not have considered it a bad thing for Hezekiah to have died then, and he had said that it would occur. But it was bad news to Hezekiah, just as it would be bad news to you and me if somebody came and said, Sorry, you're going to die. That would come as quite a shock. So he immediately turned to God, which is the correct thing to do. And said, Remember now, O Eternal, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart. And in many respects, that is certainly a true story. He had consulted God earlier in his career, He had turned people from idols and destroyed a lot of idols. So, what he's saying here is true, and he did have a case to make a plea, if you will. And I've done that which is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. So, he had not come to the point in his life where, eh, it's okay. Uh sometimes in a point of age, in a point of sickness or whatever, we come to a point where we just as soon die. And uh, I have maybe one day out of a thousand that way. <laughs> I haven't had many of them yet. But uh, I guess there's been a time or two or three when I thought, man, alive, why don't I just die and forget it all? Uh, it doesn't come very often. It doesn't stay very long, maybe two or three minutes. I don't know. But there does come a point when life on this earth is not as valuable as it used to be for people. When they have a lot of sickness, illness, uh, and so on, uh, not feeling any more pain, not feeling any more difficulty uh, becomes an option. I know Marla reached that point where she'd say every once in a while, I just as soon die than go through this. And then God granted or caused that to happen or allowed it to happen. And uh, from her particular standpoint, other than being completely healed, she's better off. Now, for me, it's been a different matter because I'm still alive and can feel and think and remember. And for me, uh, it was an awful thing. But for her, uh, whether she knew it or not, it had become a relief. He wasn't at that point here. He was still praying, Save me, O oh God. And he wept sore. Then came the word of the Eternal to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Eternal, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add to you, to your days, fifteen years. Now, this is a remarkable passage in many ways. Uh, God allows a certain amount of time and chance with people in the world. With us, I don't believe it is a matter of time and chance. I believe that he is working with us uh, carefully and closely and counts our hair. And as a result, he has a very close interest in those who are seeking and serving him. So, nothing goes by without his passing on it, his agreement with it. Uh, If he disagrees, he can change things. And here he had made a proclamation from God on high, you're going to die. Now, that is a judgment that he had made and had sent the prophet. To proclaim to Hezekiah. So, you would think that was a done deal. Literally going to happen. And Hezekiah grasped that, but he didn't like it, so he went to God and pleaded for mercy, for forgiveness, for help, for an extension of his life. And God, being a merciful and loving God, recognized that Hezekiah had indeed been a good servant and decided to extend his life. Now, that must have been a moment of sheer joy uh, to learn that, which we'll see he did learn. Because Isaiah was sent to him. I'll add 15 years, and I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria And I will defend this city. So he says, the Assyrian's not coming back. He's already gone in defeat. And I will defend it against the Assyrian. He's not going to come back and give you any more trouble. And the state of California didn't either. Uh, They picked up their marbles and went home. And this shall be a sign to you from the Eternal. That the Eternal will do this thing that he has spoken Now, he hadn't made a guarantee on taking his life. He just said, you're going to die. Now, that was a done deal as far as God was concerned. But he heard and showed mercy. Now, that tells you a lot about God. He can make a proclamation, and even having done so, he can change his mind. Now, that wasn't the way it was with the kingdoms of men and their kings. Once they made a proclamation, they couldn't back out on it. Even when Daniel was going to be fed to the lions, uh, they reminded him, you can't go back on your word. You can't change your mind because you are the potentate. You are the one who counts for everything and once you decide it and say it, you got to do it. So, with great sorrow, Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel with the lions, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, because he couldn't go back on his word. Now, God, then, let's recognize, is much greater than an earthly king Who would look bad if he changed his mind? God is above all and all in all. And if he wants to change his mind, who is to question? You might question a physical king who was there and you might get a chance and ram him with a sword. And that would be the end of that king. God isn't that way. He is above all and over all. And he makes wise decisions and wise judgments. And he is willing just to hear a man pray who had been essentially a just man, a follower of God. And he changed his mind. So, do we not have some sway with God? Have we not been serving him? Is he... Able? Could he be willing at times to change his mind for us? Now, he said he was going to spew us out because he couldn't stand us. And then he told us, if you will repent, if you will change, turn to me with zeal, turn to me with your heart, then I will lift this curse, I will forgive you, and I will bless you. So, we have a great deal to do with how and when this occurs, because we are under the gun to do what he asked us to do. And if we do our part, he certainly will do it. Now, he didn't give him the sign that he was going to die, but he felt that he should give a sign that was irrevocable that he would live. This was his final decision. You're going to live 15 more years. This will be a sign. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward, so the sun returned 10 degrees, by which degrees it was gone down. Now, that would be a remarkable thing if you looked up and it's, you're not your watch anymore. Your phone said 4 o'clock. And the sun was right over here, and it came back up here. That would be quite remarkable. And it happened. So, God has control and power over everything in the universe, and making the sun come back ten degrees is not a big deal to him, Uh, but it's a big deal to us. He tells us here in the end time as well, he's going to change the heavens. I hope we've seen that in scripture and believe that, because whether it was at this point or back maybe in Joshua's long day where they held Moses' arms up, uh, or was it Joshua's arms they held up? Sometimes these details escape me after we view them. But, uh, nonetheless, it could have been at that time that he changed it from 365 and, or 360 to 365 and a quarter. Uh some people who study these things say that there are two or three different times that apparently the length of the year was altered. We don't know for sure when God did it, but 365 and a quarter is not divisible by anything evenly. And it's difficult then to understand exactly where the heavens are. But with a 360 it's beautiful. You have an eclipse every 30 days. You know exactly when the month starts. And he makes it clear in Revelation that the time of the Gentiles will be 42 months. The preaching of the two witnesses will be 1260 days. And in another place, that it'll be three and a half years. And the only way you can have those three things happen is with a 360-day year. The math simply does not work any other way. So we know from what God says is going to happen that he's going to alter it again here in the end time, just as he did then, which is a type of the end time. A smaller type, ten degrees, as opposed to five and a quarter days, but it's the same thing. God is going to alter things. My personal feeling is he probably... We'll do it in conjunction with the church or the two witnesses so that the world can look at what happened and know that God was behind it. Because if it just happens and nobody announces it ahead of time, then they're not going to attribute it to God. But if someone tells them it's going to and then it happens, there's a chance to believe God that they won't take. Now, when this happened, Hezekiah took it. Just as we will take it and know it's from God when it does happen, because we've known for years now that this is going to happen. It has to, in order for Scripture to be unbroken. Just John six thirty five says Scripture can't be broken. So this has to happen. So after that says the writing, verse 9, of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. So he told the story after he was healed. And here is how he had felt. He put in words, I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. In other words, my life is being cut off prematurely, and my retirement years are going to disappear. I won't have that opportunity. You know, people go through their work years, work uh, time until it's time in their view to retire, and they've been thinking all this time what they do when they have retirement and the residue of the years ahead of them whether it's fishing or golf or whatever it might be, they'd chosen to be their retirement years. Uh, they were being cut off, and he felt that. I said, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall behold no man no more with the inhabitants of the world. So he's feeling kind of sorry for himself as he recounts this, that I won't be able to talk to God and I won't see man. I'm just going to be dead. And this was a frustration. This was uh, difficult for him to deal with. My age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. A shepherd's tent can be here one night. You get up the next morning and it's gone. <laughs> he, he folded up his tent and departed. I have... I have cut off like a weaver my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness. So he had, as we'll see here in a moment, a terrible boil that was bad enough it was going to kill him. So he was pining away. He was hurting. He was aching. He was feeling sick. There was probably some infection going up through his body. And he had all kinds of uh, symptoms as a result of that boil. From day even to night will you make an end of me. I'm going to die. God said I'm going to die. So he's just telling us his feelings, knowing this was about to happen before he got the answer from God. I reckon till morning that as a lion, so will he break all my bones. From day even to night will you make an end of me. I'm just going to die, and it's like a lion killing me and sitting there gnawing on my bones. Feeling pretty sorry for himself, I would say. Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. I did moan as a dove. My eyes failed with looking upward. I'm going to die. He didn't even feel like talking to God at that point. He said, I'm going to die, and it's on him, and uh, what's there to say? He had already prayed, though. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. So prior to, apparently, uh, God sending the message, he went through all these emotions. And God allowed that. He let him deal with end of life. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and himself has done it. So God sent someone to tell me about it. And God's the one doing it. What is there to say? (laughs) You're talking to the God of the universe, and there appears to be very, very little wiggle room. None to him at that point. I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. I'm just going to quietly disappear in bitterness. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So will you recover me and make me to live. So he starts feeling hopeful here. Maybe Isaiah came in the interim and let him know, uh, so he quit going through what he had been going through. And he says, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness. For my peace became great bitterness, the Hebrew says. Whatever peace he had had, the Assyrian disappearing and being destroyed, and it seeming like things were getting better, and then he had these boils, or a boil, and uh, the peace that he had had disappeared, especially when he's told he was going to die from the boil. But you have in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. So now, after having been informed, uh, he began to take hope and he could think of things to say to God. Important. We pray, we ask for help, ask for deliverance, God gives it, then we turn immediately to Him and give Him thanks for all the things that He does good for us. And he says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. So, Everything good and every nice gift that we come to have comes from God. So anything good that happens, we should thank God. And it's remiss if we don't. Um, Not only had he been delivered from the pit of corruption and had his sins cast behind his back, uh, healing is a forgiveness of sin. And in uh, James 5, we see that, that Christ, by having his body broken and beaten, can heal us, and it is the forgiveness of sin, physical sin, even spiritual sin, any answer from God that comes. So he's to be thanked. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot celebrate you. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for your truth. So he says, it's good to be alive. I can still come to you. I can talk to you. I can thank you. Uh, thanks for life. The living, the living, he shall praise you. As I do this day. The fathers to the children shall make known your truth. The Lord was ready to save me. So he was there. He was willing. He just needed to be asked in the right way and in the right uh, attitude. And God was there, ready. Just as he tells us in Jeremiah, as I've said many times, he says we're to seek him with all our heart and try to find him and he will be found of us. Chapter 31 or 33, I get them mixed up. So he's standing there willing to be found of us if we will seek him. That is a very, very important scripture for us to remember. We do our part. He's always there to do his. He's always willing. The highest points of his character include mercy, forgiveness, love. He's willing to do those things. The Lord was ready to save me, therefore we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the eternal. He was going to have music made to God from then on, for fifteen years, out of thankfulness for what God had done for him. Sometimes we wallow in self-pity, sometimes we feel sorry for ourselves. Sometimes we wonder if God's there to bless us at all. You know, one of the greatest things we can have is thankfulness. All through the Bible, being thankful to God for what He has done for us is one of the key emotions, the key feelings, the key elements of our character that needs to be there. When you're being thankful, you're not feeling sorry for yourself. When you're being thankful, your heart is filled with gratitude, thanksgiving, and joy. One of the fruits of the Spirit. That God has given you what He has given you. Now, maybe He hasn't given you everything you want. He never said He would. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, He said you can't serve two masters. You can only serve one. (coughs) You can't put anything ahead of serving God. Now, we are here to make a living. We're here to raise families. We're here to live physical lives. But he says, you don't let anything come between you and me. Nothing can get between us. And if you allow anything between yourself and God, that becomes an idol to you. It can be money. It can be children, wife or husband. People sometimes put a mate ahead of God. They put their children ahead of God. And God says, don't do that. You and I have to have the highest relationship. Did not Christ even say that we might have to leave father, mother, brother, sister, children, and everything, and come and serve him. The apostles, he says, leave your fishing nets, leave everything you've got, and come and serve and follow me. So he had to have proof from them that they would do that. Paul was a situation where he was very high among the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin apparently, and he had to give up all of that. The trappings, the power, the position, the authority that he had had. He had to walk away from it. Now, he did make tents, which was quite a little different than being a leading Pharisee. So, he was willing to work with his hands to help make a living. And I think that was partly, and maybe mostly, for the Gentiles that he was beginning to preach to, that he himself was willing to work uh, and show that. So it wasn't that he left every. Didn't, he didn't become above human. He was still human, but he was still putting God's work in God first. That's the key there. That everything has to be God first. Now I preached that here for quite a while because I saw some people who were putting their kids way ahead of God, and they would do things for their kids ahead of serving God. And it was not well taken. Not well taken at all. It was what God said, but sometimes people don't want to be bothered with what God says. Their kids are more important to them than anything else. And our kids should be important to us. But more important than God? Nah, never. Never. Not ever. We love our children as much as anything on earth, perhaps. But you can't put them ahead of God. He controls the keys of life and death for you and for your children. And you don't control that with yourself or your children. He is above all. There might come a time when he asks us, If we're living at Jerusalem, to leave our kids, if they're in the least bit rebellious, and go to Zion. Leave them behind. If you call and they don't come, you don't dare go back after them. God said to flee as soon as you see the sign that it's time to go. And you don't go back. You don't grab anything. If you're in the field, you just run. That includes your kids. Are you ready to face that one if it happens? In other words, now we need to be pledging our lives to God and entrusting our children with Him. Many of us have children who are out in the world and they could care less about God right now. They're not our concern. Now, we can love them, we can be friendly with them, We can talk about worldly things with them, but you don't much dare discuss religion with them because they won't like it. So you leave them for God to take care of. As I've said many times, He loves them more than you do, believe it or not. And He will take care of them and give them their chance at salvation when He knows is the most optimum time for that to occur. Whether now, the millennium, or the Great White Zone Judgment. And those are things beyond our control, but that we need to believe them in faith that he will take care of them. He's promised it. So, he would sing songs and have stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the eternal. For Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil, and he shall recover. I'm assuming that means green figs off the tree that would have pulling power, not a dried fig that you get out of the store, perhaps, because that pulling power is probably taken out of it as it dries. I don't know that for sure, but I would assume that. It was probably figs off the tree that pulls the poison out of the boil. Might be a good one to remember, in case you get a boil. Green figs might be an answer. Certainly was here. Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go on up to the house of the eternal? Now apparently he had asked and said, Well God, you said I'm going to live fifteen more years. How do I know that? And maybe that's when God said, sundials 1 back 10 degrees. There's you a sign that this is going to happen. So he began to take hope. Now, Herbert Armstrong had a heart attack, and I have no doubt he had been used to raise up the end-time church, uh, at least the first episode. There's, There's two episodes, two seasons, two temples, as we clearly see in Prophecy former and the latter, he's the former. But it's very clear to me that from the truths that God gave him, the correct doctrines, that he was that man. So he had a heart attack. And it was at a critical time uh, when the state of California was trying to take over, and everything could have been lost right there. But he recovered from that heart attack and lived another nine years till eighty six. So there's a parallel there between the historical account and the end time account. Was it fifteen years? Sundial didn't go back. But that had been done in history. This I think God did to preserve the man's life so that he could oversee the church that much longer before it would come apart. Because God knew when He was going to break it apart and why. He had all that figured out ahead of time. And I know that talking to Mr. Armstrong, he was afraid that he would die and the church would fall apart. He expressed it in those words to me one day as we were walking into his office. Uh, he was taking, I, I don't know, his knife or some medication he was taking for his blood pressure in his heart. And his comment was, I probably shouldn't be taking this medicine, but I'm afraid if I die, the church will fall apart. He had good understanding. Because when he did die, the church fell apart. So God, I think, caused him to live that much longer. And we'll see that some things that happened in Hezekiah's life during that 15 years were pretty difficult. We'll see that here in this next chapter. Because God took the state of California out, and then in comes Babylon. So let's read on and then relate the story as it occurred. At that time, Merodach-Balaban, uh, the son of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things. So here comes somebody bringing a gift from Babylon. Gifts from Babylon can be a scary thing. (laughs) Babylon was run by Satan. Uh, The governments of this world today are Babylon, or confusion, and run by Satan. Uh, The United States is the leading satanic state. We are the head of Babylon, and about to be destroyed as a result of that. So here comes Babylon. Now this, this makes your ears stand up and your eyes come open. But Hezekiah was glad of them, Now, here begins to be a problem. And showed them the house of his precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion, that Hezekiah showed them not. Now, how could that be a problem? Here come these emissaries from Babylon... They bring you a gift and the good wishes of the king and then you show them every good thing you have. Now, the king of Babylon was a human who liked power. He liked wealth. He liked dominion over all. And this is just waving these things in front of his eyes and maybe you're thinking... He'll be pleased to see that we have such blessings from Almighty God and he'll be thankful for us. But that's not the way he reacted. A Gentile king wants what you got, and he'll come after what you got. So it was not a good thing for Hezekiah to show everything. Then came Isaiah the prophet. King Hezekiah, another visit from the prophet. This sometimes is good and sometimes it's not so hot. said to him, What said these men, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country to me, even from Babylon. Now Isaiah's question in the first place begins to show that there's a problem here. Where did they come from, and what did you show them? Well, they came from Babylon, and I showed them everything. Hezekiah might have been proud of himself for that up to this point. But let's see how the story develops. Now, Herbert Armstrong did the same thing in many respects. Once he had built the auditorium, with the sign on it that says, Dedicated to the great God. And he built the campuses up. Had three beautiful campuses. Three nicer places on earth. I doubt could be found than those three were. I was at all three of them and they were magnificent. Maybe Big Sandy a little less, but uh, still pretty magnificent. But he got on his jet airplane and took pictures and movies and all these things to show all the presidents, kings of the earth. He didn't get to all of them, but he got to quite a few. And the most prominent, Japan, China, uh, the monarchies of Europe and so on. He showed them everything we had. That's kind of about as I look back to vanity and ego and pride, to show off all these things we have. Now, he felt that what he was doing was showing God having blessed him and that he was giving a message of give is better than get, which he said over and over and over. And he tried to get across to them that as a king, as a monarch, as a head of the state, uh, if you would give to the people, it's better than taking from them. Truly a spiritual principle. Something all the leaders of this world need to know. Because they're greedy, grasping, foul human beings. God did not say in Daniel 4 in vain that He set over the kingdoms of men the basis of men. And what we're seeing play out, play being played out right now in this world, is that the basis of men rule the governments. And certainly, I think, the U.S. government is the bottom of the barrel. They're as bad as you get right there. So what good does it do to show off everything you've got? Now, Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says, Go out and make disciples around the world which is what I believe Herbert Armstrong's job was. And he kind of departed from that when he began to go to the leaders and show off what he had and dine with them and bring them soup and crystal and all kinds of nice gifts that he brought. I think he would have been better off focusing on the words of God, and the kingdom of God, and the promises of God, rather than all of these physical things. The fanfare that comes from coming in on his Gulf Stream 4. Didn't need that. So, Hezekiah doing this was obviously a problem in God's eyes. Because Isaiah calls him on it. Then said he, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. So, the gold and silver vessels of God, he saw everything. Millions and millions of dollars worth of things. Now, those things are going to show up again. And the world is going to see them. The gold and the silver and the hidden things of God, Isaiah 44 and 45, are going to come forth. And they're going to come forth at the time of the latter temple. The two witnesses and the remnant church. is when they're coming out because it is from chapter 40 on that he talks about that work starting up and finishing God's work on this earth as far as man is involved. That's through the two witnesses who die in the streets and are resurrected three and a half days later. So Isaiah 40 starts it, and uh, Revelation 12, or 11, actually finishes it. So that's going to happen during our days, during this last period of time. So God's going to show those, and He then will show the world from east to west, that he is God by himself showing his treasures. It's not man's job to do that. That's God's job. And man will assist him in it. So I've seen it all. Now, this was a time when Babylon was flourishing, and we're in a time when Babylon not only is starting to flourish, but is going to flourish as a worldwide kingdom. For 42 months, uh, the times of the Gentiles will be in place. So we're looking at the same thing as Hezekiah was. Now, we have Babylon coming down on us. First, we're destroyed as the leader of Babylon, and all the rest of the Babylon's then form a government apart from the United States because we won't be here anymore. We'll be gone, either dead or in captivity. So it's the rest of the world that forms the times of the Gentiles. Now that's all Israel, not just the U.S., but we're the leaders as Ephraim, the firstborn, God designated at the end, and we're the most responsible and will suffer the greatest. But Western Europe and all all Israelite countries are going to be decimated the same way we are. Europe's done. It's going. Just like we are. And it'll be the Gentiles then that take over. So we're facing that, and Hezekiah didn't quite know it yet, but he was as well. And that will be revealed here in these last few verses. So I've showed them everything. Verse 5, Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come, that all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have laid up in store until this day, "...shall be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left," says the Eternal. So he said, everything you've showed them, they're going to get. It came from your fathers, from Solomon, from David. But it's all going away, and Babylon is going to take it. And indeed they did. And even here at the end, once God shows his great treasures... And the temple is built, and those treasures are used by the church. Then he says there at the end of Daniel chapter 11, that the beast is going to come in and take over Jerusalem and have all the treasures. He'll have them all. Now Herbert Armstrong showed them ahead of time, then they're going to get them. Nothing will be left. And of your sons that shall issue from you, which you shall beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So everything that Hezekiah had and his sons were all going there, and the sons would become eunuchs, unable to accomplish anything in terms of regeneration. Now, Mr. Armstrong called the church his children. He called the ministry his sons. And right after his death, the church began to crumble very, very rapidly and go back into Babylon. And I'm going to read you a story of that here in a moment to finish this up. And there'll be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So, there's Daniel, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were neutered, so they'd leave the women alone and made servants in the palace at Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the eternal which you have spoken. Now, how is that good? You've just been told everything you got is going to be taken away, and your sons are going to be neutered and be servants. Of the king of Babylon. And he says, Well, that's a good thing. Now, why was it good for Hezekiah? He was looking at himself. He said, Moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. This isn't going to happen until I die, and therefore, it's not my monkey, not my zoo, not my problem. I'll have peace in my days, and this will come after I do go to my father's. So he's looking at it kind of selfishly at that point. He wasn't, over, he wasn't frustrated that the Assyrian didn't get it all. God took care of him, and now he's going to let the Babylonian come in and take everything that's here, including my sons, and humiliate them. But at least I'm going to be sleeping with my fathers, and it's not my problem. Well, I think he realized he'd stuck his foot in it from the things that Isaiah told him. And he knew that there was trouble coming. And I can see where he reached that conclusion. Here comes trouble. I've been warned. I got 15 years after that last round. And now the 15's about up. And trouble's coming again. At least now, I'll be dead. So, I think he had gone from that, Oh, i got to live, i got to live, to... Maybe death ain't so bad after all. Maybe he had made that transition when this threat came upon them. Now, what happened to those who came out of Worldwide when it was taken back to Babylon? Most of them went back into Babylon, back into Protestantism, back into this life, and kind of forgot about God, or... They just continued on with what they had been doing, which got them sued out, thinking we're Philadelphians and we're righteous and we're zealous and we're going to a place of safety and everything's going to be well with us. So, maybe they had kind of the attitude Hezekiah had. There'll be peace and truth in my days. I'll, I'm still okay. I'm still fine. I'm going to take you now, for the final one, to Zechariah 5. Because this is set right in the middle of the remnant coming back here in the end. The two witnesses showing up and teaching the church properly and God protecting them out of the trouble that is coming. And the only ones that he said he would do that with were Philadelphia. And those who are still remaining from Sardis, which died worldwide... And those who repent out of Laodicea will form the Philadelphia church, and it will be protected. But let's notice in the middle of that context, because Zechariah 4 uh, talks about the two witnesses teaching the church primarily. Chapter 6 uh, continues that theme, especially the last half of the chapter, because it talks about the same people and blessing coming from God if we obey. But instead, in the middle of that is chapter 5, which was an enigma to me for a long time. I didn't understand what this is talking about, and I remember praying about it. This is many years ago now, and suddenly it came very clear. Let's look at it. Right in the middle of the remnant church, and the two witness story, there is this one. Where did the remnant come from? Out of worldwide. Where did the two witnesses come from? Out of worldwide. They've been trained ahead of time. So, worldwide is the key up to the point that it died. And here's what God would say, and it's very similar to the end of Isaiah 39 as we just read. So, he says in the last verse of chapter 4 that the olive trees here are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, the only times this is mentioned are in This chapter, Zechariah 4, and uh, Revelation 11. The two places that they are mentioned, and that's the only ones. So the two witnesses of Revelation 11 are the two witnesses of Haggai and Zechariah. They're already alive on earth. They've been trained, and they're going to be showing up real soon now. Worldwide Church of God went back into Babylon, uh, and let's see how it happened and how God said it would happen. It's right here in chapter 5. Whole story. Then I turned, after I'd been shown who the two witnesses were, they were the two olive trees. So it's in that context. Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. A roll being a uh, scroll rolled up We have tablets today in our papers flat, but they rolled them up. They rolled on it, rolled it up, sealed it. So here's a flying scroll. Uh, And he said to me, what do you see? This is Zechariah here. And I answered, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof is 10 cubits. Now that's important, I think, because... uh, the dimensions of the temple porch where they stood to read the law in the Old Testament was that same dimension, 15 by 30 feet. And this row that he saw was the same. So it represents the law of God. Now it was written, uh, well, we'll see it here in a minute. Then said he to me, this is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth For everyone that steals shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and everyone that swears shall be cut off as on that side according to it. (laughs) The Ten Commandments were written on two tablets of stone. The scroll had writing on both sides, just like the Ten Commandments. And he starts talking about the commandments. What forbids stealing? What forbids the swearing? The Ten Commandments. So, this is what caused the curse was breaking of the commandments of God. That's why we have a curse being pronounced upon the whole earth today. is because of disobedience to the laws of God. So, he's making that very clear. This is why the curse is coming on America and on the rest of the world. I will bring it forth, says the Eternal of Hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief, And of the house of him that swears falsely by my name, that would be idolatry, putting their claims and their desires and their personal gods ahead of the true God. And it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. So God says, anyone disobedient to his laws... This curse is going to enter into his house, destroy him and his house. Isn't it pretty clear through the scriptures and Revelation in particular that he's going to destroy virtually everything on earth? Isaiah 24 says, And few men left to start the millennium. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what is this that goes forth. I want you to understand what this means, what's happening here. It represents the law, and it represents a curse that comes from breaking the law. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is an ephah that goes forth. An ephah was about the size of a bushel basket, seven and a half gallons. And so this was a basket, a measuring device, that went forth. They used it to put grain in. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. Because what you're seeing here is something that's going to be a worldwide deal. And behold, there was lifted up a talon of lead, and this is a woman that sits in the midst of the ether. So here's a woman sitting in this basket. A woman in prophecy is represented uh, represents a church, not always, but very frequently. So you have this church sitting in this basket, and he said, this is wickedness, that this church had gone into wickedness. That's why God spewed it out of his mouth. So he's talking here in an end-time prophecy about the time of the remnant church, the two witnesses, and what happened to the worldwide church of God. And why it happened. He said, this is wickedness. And he cast it in the midst of the basket. And he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So he covered over the top of the basket with lead. Then lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, there came out two women... And the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. So here's this basket containing wickedness, and God puts a lid on it. Now, what did he do with Worldwide when he brought it out for sin? He put a lid on it. (laughs) You know, sometimes when you talk too much, somebody might tell you, put a lid on it. Well, that's what he did. The broadcast quit. The magazines quit. Everything quit when they started going back into the world. Pretty much. Nothing like what had been done before has been done since by any of the groups. Just not even a comparison has been done by anyone, whoever they claim to be. They've had a weight of lead. In other words, they become eunuchs spiritually. They can't accomplish anything. They try. They try to publish booklets, they try to have broadcasts, some TV, but nothing happens. It's like a eunuch. He can try, but he can't get the job done, and nothing happens. Same as Hezekiah's sons. Herbert Armstrong's sons have suffered the same situation. Let's read on. Uh I lifted up my eyes, and there came out two women that could represent churches. The wind was in their wings, and the wings were of a stork, two unclean birds. I've likened those to Joseph Taoch and his son Joseph Jr. That's two unclean birds that when he had control of the church, took it right back into Babylon, back into evangelical Protestantism, satanic worship. That's where they took it. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. They had wings, so they kind of lifted it up. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Where do these take the ephah? And he said to me, To build it an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. So they took the church, which had been godly, and went into sin, picked it up, and took it back into Babylon. And there, the ministry that had been of worldwide and were part of a production that worked, became as eunuchs. United, Philadelphia, Living, all of them, have been unable to do anything. Yeah, they Publish a few things, but nothing happens. And worldwide, when God was blessing it, something happened. I was part of that in Miami starting in 66. And people would read the plain truth. They'd hear a broadcast. They'd call or write Pasadena. I'd get these letters, these requests to go see these people. And man alive, they were coming into the church left and right. I was busier than a one-armed paper paper hanger. Hardly had time to do anything because I was out visiting people all the time, day and night. Six, seven days a week. Trying to keep up with it. And the church, not just in Miami, but everywhere, grew like you couldn't believe. There were about a hundred, a hundred and a quarter total in Miami. And there was no full-time minister there when I was sent down there at 22 years of age, barely. And four years later when I left, there were 600. That's how fast it was growing. And that wasn't attributable to me. That was happening all over the country. Uh, Because God was blessing the effort. And he hasn't done that with any of these that came out and went back from Pasadena into the Babylonian society, if you will, and they've been like humans ever since. Every last one of them. Now they try to brag about how many booklets and how much broadcasting they've got. But you don't hear them bragging about how we've got 30% increase in members. We've, You know, it's just growing, growing. God's blessing it. It isn't there. I'm sorry. It's just not there. I hate to pop their little bubble. It won't pop it anyway because there's so much vanity and ego there and pride in being the Philadelphians but they won't listen. They'll just think, I'm crazy. And that's okay. That's okay. Not a problem. Haven't they always treated anyone who told the truth that? All the way through? They didn't like to hear it. Hezekiah didn't even like it. When Isaiah would come and say, thus says the word of the Lord. ruh I don't want to hear that. And then he did say, well, I'll give you 15 years. Okay, I'll listen to that. He he was picky in what he wanted to hear. And people are that way today. Nothing has changed. And it is like eunuchs in Babylon right now, today. This prophecy has been being, it is fulfilled right now. Zechariah 5, you can cross off your prophecy list. It isn't prophecy anymore. It's history as an end time happening. Two unclean birds took Worldwide back to Babylon and set it on its own base there. Left Pasadena behind. Sold the buildings. Got rid of everything. God told Hezekiah they'll take it all. And they've taken it all. And it's going to happen again to the latter church. The two witnesses and all the remnant we're going to flee to Zion, and the beast and the false prophet will take over the newly built Jerusalem and temple, and reign there for three and a half years, and have all the treasures of God that are currently hidden, The God is going to show, to show that He's God, and then they're going to say, we're greater than God. And now we will, and even some of them right now, Harari, I think is his name, I think I finally got it. Uh, Schwab, or Schwab, I call him, young pigeon, uh, has said that we're taking on the powers of God, the divine, and we will be doing things greater than God did. We're going to have these superhumans that are part robotic, that won't die, and we can exchange their parts, and they'll live forever. That's what they plan on doing. And God says, uh uh-uh, uh, not going to happen. Old story's in here. But what happened to worldwide is laid out right here in Zechariah 5 and it has happened. It's a fate accomplished. It's done. It's not a prophecy anymore. It's a prophecy that continues on because they're not recovering from it and won't. Their only chance is to repent and be part of the faithful remnant that come to build the latter temple. That's their only chance. Or to repent in the tribulation before they're martyred and still qualify for the kingdom of God because of God's mercy. That's where we are. So this is a fulfilled prophecy. Maybe we ought to start making a list of all these things we read back here and say, this one's yet to come, this one is done. <laughs> because some of them are now becoming done. And this is one of them. So, I think that's enough to show that worldwide died, it was Sardis. Philadelphia has not existed yet. It will be comprised of the few who are still alive from Sardis, and those who were from Sardis, who became spewed Laodiceans, who repent. And that's only going to be 10%. The Bible is very, very clear on that. A 10% remnant will come to build the latter temple. So, let's do everything we can to turn to God, with God, with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and be part of the remnant to serve Him and actually accomplish something here in the end time.